a Spring Fox production. This is Resilience Real Time with Peter Sigley. Hi, I'm Simon Cook and welcome to Resilience Real Time with Peter Sigley. For those of you who are regular real-time listeners, you'll already know Peter Sigley, and I'm delighted to have her with me again. Peter is the Chief Knowledge Officer from SpringFox, and she comes with a stack of professional qualifications from psychology, counselling to economics, and has a real in-depth expertise in many topics. And as we discuss today's topic, you'll see how valuable all this experience and knowledge really is. Because today's topic is all about imposter syndrome, something that many of us feel but probably don't really understand fully or have strategies to cope with. I sometimes experience this myself, and so this discussion is definitely going to be a valuable one for all of us. Hi, Peter, and thanks for joining me today. Now, before we start, are you the real Peter? You are, aren't you? You're not an imposter. (laughs) No, I'm not an imposter. I'm the real Peter, at least this version of one anyway. Brilliant. Okay, let's get started with the reality of imposter syndrome. What is it all about? So our listeners may have heard of the term imposter syndrome before, or it's fair to say that they may even know it by another name. So it's also called imposter phenomenon, imposterism, fraud syndrome, or even the imposter experience, so to speak. So imposter syndrome, or IS, uh, refers to that internal belief that you are not competent or you're not as good as others might perceive you to be. And so you will discredit your talents, your skills, your achievements. And this can be in spite of actually um, receiving awards or achieving certain levels uh, around uh, certifications. And basically what you're doing here is regardless of any external validation of ability or skill, you will dismiss that and you will tend to ignore the talents and skills that have led to some level of success. And what you do is you end up attributing that success to either luck or maybe the involvement of others. So uh, you really place more importance of uh, what others have done in a situation. With that, it can be real fear that others will find out that you're not good enough and uh, as they thought you were. So you really end up feeling like a fraud or you feel vulnerable. And these feelings can be crippling as they are often really persistent. And so there's many of us uh, that would probably be able to recall a situation where we felt a bit like that. In actual fact, one of the stats I saw said some 70% of us will have that feeling of being an imposter uh, at least once in our career. That's interesting. And look, as you were defining imposter syndrome, I was left thinking there surely must be a point where the world knows and celebrates your ability and that effectively you'd be protected from imposter syndrome. Surely that's the case, right? So, yes, the world does recognise and the world does celebrate. Uh, The disconnect is that we don't uh, value that or, or believe that to be true. So, unfortunately, there is no absolute here. And I have a few examples where really famous people have shared feelings of self-doubt. Emma Watson, a quote from her, uh, she said, look, at any moment, someone's going to find out I'm a total fraud. And other people who have expressed that self-doubt are people that are going to be quite surprising, uh, quite honestly. So Sheryl Sandberg, David Bowie, Serena Williams, Howard Schultz, Tina Fey, Maya Angelou, Uh, have all struggled here and most of us would know those names so well represented and most of us would say outstanding in their field of what they do in terms of talent, uh, level of success, rankings, 
any any measure that you want to put against that, we would say these people as highly successful. I'm going to say the one that really surprised me was Albert Einstein, who said, I feel compelled to think of myself as an involuntary swindler. Now, who would have thought Albert Einstein would have that level of self-doubt? I just don't believe that. It's amazing, isn't it, to think of Albert Einstein having imposter syndrome, the brain that he had. I know, amazing. So it is hard to understand how these amazing people could feel that they're not good enough when the rest of us celebrate their achievements. So I think this goes a really long way to helping people to understand what we're talking about and explain imposter syndrome. Okay, so... Is it a mental disorder as you are talking about people feeling a sense of failure or having low sense of self-esteem, which occur in other um, mental health conditions, don't they? Yes, they do occur in other mental health conditions. And I can definitely appreciate your train of thought here. But no, it's not a clinical condition as per the DSM-5, and nor is it a disease. Uh, however, people Sorry, who... Sorry, Peter, DSM-5? Oh, good pickup. I can't remember. Uh, Diagnostic Statistics Manual number 5. And I'm going to say to you that people who do experience imposter syndrome may also have those feelings of anxiety and depression, which are the clinically diagnosable conditions. But this is not necessarily the case. It's not um, the same size fits all with this conversation. So like many of the things that we've discussed previously in the podcast series, it is a phenomenon and an experience that occurs in an individual. So think of it more as an imposter phenomenon as opposed to a syndrome, if that helps you to conceptualize what we're talking about. Yeah, it really does. And it is actually really good to know. So how and why then do people develop imposter syndrome? So it is likely to be due to a number of factors and they're quite quite numerous. Um, so the first one I think of is family experience and say a family who places a lot of value on achievement and how success is measured depends on that level of achievement. And this ends up resulting in people thinking this is how their self-worth is going to be measured. So you can appreciate it can be really hard to live up to the expectations set by others. And often these expectations are set with no realization that that's what individuals are doing. Uh, nor the intent to cause harm. So people don't go out of their way, particularly in families, to cause harm like that. But parents do it all the time. Oh, Simon, yes, he's our smart one. Or you're always the good boy and we can always depend on you. Is what I'm, we would I'm not sure they said that very often, actually, Peter. <laughs> uh, knowing you, Simon, probably not, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. How's oh, that? That's a bit yeah, fair enough. <laughs> now I'm being flippant, uh, of course. So um, personality traits will also play a factor here. And as you might expect, our perfectionist thinkers are at risk here. And this is where we're setting expectations that are well outside um, what other people would consider to be achievable. So they're exceedingly high expectations of self. And we are really unrealistic about what success looks like or what good looks like or what is a point where other people would consider that to be a good level of success. And this can certainly be the case when someone is already really good at what they do and really competent. So we probably could all name someone who is a high achiever and we know high achieving teams. There's lots of people attracted to this space and these people are always striving to do better and they never seem to take their foot off the accelerator but when you talk to them, they downplay what they do. They're often highlighting what wasn't done. They're finding the negative in their performance, uh, seeding their own 
self-doubt here. And as a result, they're often left disappointed in themselves and others and really struggling to be happy in what they've been able to do. So that's one trigger. Uh, It might also trigger if we're promoted or move into a new role or start a new job. In this situation, this is where the challenge of what we're being asked to do doesn't necessarily meet with the current skills we bring to that position. And most of us would say it takes about nine months to really settle into a new role. For those who suffer imposter syndrome, there doesn't appear to be a point or a level that they reach where they feel as though they've achieved enough to be recognized for this achievement. So whilst most of us would settle into a rhythm and feel comfortable there, imposter syndrome uh, sufferers will never feel as though they've gotten to that point. So uh, work can be a really big point for triggering that response. And likewise, if you can think along those lines, education or academic settings, uh, say universities, for example, is another space that might trigger feelings of inadequacies, particularly if we feel as though we're surrounded by really smart people and how could we possibly um, measure up to that. And we also know social situations are in relationships where we can be left feeling uh, full of self-doubt and feeling like a fraud. So there's a number of environments or spaces that can trigger our feelings around imposter syndrome. So I think that's a brilliant description. And and I guess the question I've got to ask is, is there a difference between men and women? And the reason I'm asking is that I've read articles that talk about this more for women. In fact, I actually don't think I've seen anything about imposter syndrome in men. This is a really important insight that you've raised here. Uh, In the early research, it was thought that women experience imposter syndrome at a much higher rate than men. Since this early research, though, there is a view that this has changed and it is now thought that men and women can suffer equally here. In fact, it is something that is experienced across race, it's experienced across age, it is experienced across gender and across a large number of professions. With all that said, though, it is recognised also that people who are marginally represented or underrepresented in society may actually report higher levels of Uh, imposter syndrome uh, in terms of people suffering in that space because there is that prevailing fear of being a fraud despite their successes. I have to agree with you though, you do see more written about women than men in relation to imposter syndrome. I think in part this has to do with the very first article which was written in 1978 that was titled The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women. And I think that probably set a filter for the conversation that prevailed for quite a period of time. Since that first article, though, some of the research does highlight there might be differences in men and women and why they feel like imposters, not the rate of sufferers, but the reasons why they feel like an imposter. For women, it's thought to be around the perception of having the ability and the power to outperform others. Whereas for men, it seems to be different to that. It is often driven by a fear of being unsuccessful or not good enough. So there can be some nuances depending on the group that we're in. Right. So let's get this really clear. Is it something that high achievers suffer from and where they feel like they're a fraud and not good enough despite their achievements? That's what it seems like, right? Well, yes, um, but now I'm going to be really annoying and say, well, not quite. Uh, What do I mean by this? Well, it's not something that impacts just high achievers, although they do have a high representation. In fact, there is something called pluralistic ignorance, and this is where there's a misconception of what the norm is and what a group may be experiencing, which can impact 
anyone and everyone. So this is where we incorrectly think we're the only ones who doubt ourselves because no one else expresses any doubts about themselves. And you can certainly see how this plays out at work as everyone seems to have it all together. When we take people's outward behavior and think this is a true reflection of what they believe or about their attitudes around their own ability, then we can be mistaken here. So let me think of an example. Let me go back to that social context as one of the triggers, say. Um, think about if you've ever gone to an event, say a school reunion, and as you approach the door, you tend to slow down and you take a breath in. Oh, gosh, you straighten your back, you um, pull back your shoulders and you walk in and you're thinking already here, everyone has done so well, you doubt how you're going to stack up. And all this view seems to be reinforced as people are laughing and they're looking relaxed and confident and really successful. So now the self-doubt's really firing off at this point. You must have been watching me at my last one. Um, look, you <laughs> spoke about people having feelings of fear and anxiety. Um, I guess they might feel other things too. What else might they feel? Simon, uh, as you can appreciate in the teams that we work in, and lots of them are really high achieving teams, they do express feelings of fear and anxiety. But as you know, we also know they're feeling isolated, they're feeling disconnected, um, particularly when we've grouped everybody else as being different, and that's how we view it. So we can feel really alienated from the group, and that's an awful feeling to have to sit with for a long period of time or day in and day out as you come to work. Not lovely, yeah. not a nice space to be in. You, I mean, you mentioned work earlier. So how might this actually present itself at work? And I guess, how do I lean into that? So in terms of actually presenting itself, I think I would pose a couple of questions to get a bit of a litmus test on how I might be responding. And then thinking about if I'm answering yes to these questions or answering no to these questions, depending on what the question's being asked, how can I reverse that such that I'm actually leaning into the very behaviours I'm trying to avoid? So let me think about this. Uh, I would start by looking at how well am I taking feedback? And if I'm not taking feedback well, or am I avoiding hearing what others think about what I've said and done, then I'm going to be looking for opportunities where I do seek feedback. And I'll be doing that in a safe space, at least initially, so that I have that safety net around being able to hear what people have to say. I'd also be looking at whether I'm avoiding asking for any help for fear of being judged as incompetent. Oh my gosh, hand up here. Uh, I do this one. And because you don't want to be seen as not knowing enough about a topic or being competent in a space. And I think that help-seeking behaviour is a really good way to help minimise the impact of imposter syndrome or really exacerbating that space. Uh, I think with that hand in hand goes second guessing your own decision making. So when you're not confident in what you're thinking needs to happen and finding that you're doing more procrastination than work. So you're not starting projects, you're not finishing projects, you're stalling in what you're doing. And so there seems to be busyness and noise, but not much output. And the other one I would say is, am I avoiding taking on new opportunities because I fear I won't be good enough or I doubt my ability to succeed? Despite having that reconfirmed that my experience, my performance to date makes me the best candidate for this opportunity, it is about how do I sit with that level of uncertainty and really lean into that conversation and try that new opportunity. Thanks for that, because I really like that you shared that you do some of these things yourself, and that makes me feel so much better already, just that alone. And it kind of leads me into the next question. It's the important one, I think, more than ever, is if you're a leader, how do you support yourself and our teams of high achievers? 
So I would say to you, Simon, that remembering that statistic that some 70% of us will experience imposter syndrome or feeling like we're in that space at some point during our career, uh, this is not something that we can just diminish and ignore and think, oh, that's not my team or that's not uh, where I'm sitting at the moment. I think that level of reflection is really quite important. And I like the fact that you spoke about as a leader and as a team member. So how does one support the other? I think that's a, a great thing to bear in mind when we start to talk about this. So there's certainly a number of things that I would put forward here. It's definitely important to encourage individuals, the team as a whole, to acknowledge that they don't know everything. It's not possible to know everything. And this is certainly made so much easier if you as a leader can acknowledge when you don't know something. And I'd say to you, Simon, quite honestly, we hear all the time people leaning into conversations when they feel their leader is realistic, um, human, uh, willing to share, even a willingness to be slightly vulnerable, then they're prepared to have a conversation. And I think that's a really important thing to be mindful of. Uh, as a leader, you're certainly wanting to foster an environment of high sustainable performance, but you don't want to have the environment such that it's really highly competitive, where it's literally dog eat dog. So people are literally tearing strips off each other. Uh, so there's high comparisons around individuals, and we know that can often go beyond uh, the external performance to the very personal, and we definitely don't want to be going into that space. Focusing and celebrating effort as much as outcome, we talk about this one a lot. It raises awareness that at times we don't get the outcome we're looking for, but people still give their best and still bring their best game to a situation. So really what you're doing as a leader is reinforcing that failure is okay, but doing nothing and being frozen, that's not actually not okay. So of course we want to achieve the outcome, but at times we will find that there's a misstep and it doesn't happen, but that person isn't dismissed and uh, alienated from the group because of that. For me, some of the greatest growth opportunities I've ever had have come out of failure, actually. So it's a fabulous point you make there, Peter. And I agree with you, Simon. I think most of us can reflect on a situation where we haven't done <laughs> what we had set out to do, but it has been a huge growth moment. And I think when we can add that and when leaders can add that to celebrating achievements, I think we get a really powerful impact for an individual and a team. Good leaders who really operate well in this space, they're encouraging active listening for the whole team um, when any of the team is talking. So we're paying attention to that negative self-talk that appears and we look to challenge how accurate that is. And it's really helpful if the statement is reframed into something more positive, not only for that individual, but for the team. And so their perception of that event has shifted into the positive. Uh, with listening has to be the facilitating of open discussions. So as a leader, you're really encouraging people to look at what went well, what didn't go well, what needs to change, what needs to stop, what needs to start. And this helps provide a more holistic picture of an issue or a task or a job, and it gives a framework for that discussion to happen. So if we're listening and we're facilitating open discussions, we're certainly looking at improving our communication style and our timeliness. Um, with really tight feedback loops, you keep people informed and you minimise time for self-doubt and fear to take hold. There's benefits from tight feedback loops. We know it uh, helps minimise opportunities for conflict. We know it helps facilitate flow. So it goes a long way to providing structure and security and 
something concrete to anchor our actions off. So tight feedback loops is definitely something I'd say here. So remembering that when you're feeling like an imposter, this usually happens when you feel that people expect you to know more than you do. So the suggestions I've offered, I'm hoping that goes some way to minimizing that perception that you need to know everything and that you're doing it on your own. Look, thanks, Peter. It's amazing to think that so many of the people that I would have considered to be completely confident and self-assured would struggle with imposter syndrome. And I'm certainly glad that we have Albert Einstein for company. (laughs) Gaining such insights and openly discussing imposter syndrome is so important. And I think it's been so valuable to help normalize this thinking. Just simply excellent. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Simon, and I agree. I think that's the only time in history that our names will appear in the same sentence as Albert Einstein. (laughs) Absolutely. Sorry, otherwise we are definitely being imposters, right? Um, Thank you. (laughs) Join us next time on Resilience Real Time. Until then, keep well. This is a Spring Fox production, hosted by me, Simon Cook, edited by Claire Taylor, music written, composed and produced by Josh Jones. Tune in next time wherever you find your podcasts or check out our website, springfox.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe to help others find this podcast.